incredible, such a powerful hymn. Such a powerful hymn. We're going to go ahead and get started. Let me pray for us, and we will get into our parables. We have a lot of room uh, to cover. If you can, just we'll be in Matthew 13 again. And the parables of the kingdom. Let me pray for us. We'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, O Lord, your kingdom is forever. Lord, you will reign forever. Your kingdom is unstoppable. Uh, Lord, our king is exalted, and his king cannot be moved. It cannot be shaken, Lord, and it will not be derailed from accomplishing its purposes in the world. Oh, God, I pray that you would use us mightily as the community of the kingdom to further and advance that kingdom, Lord. Let this mortal life, this mortal life also, let this, this, uh, this life go. Um, Lord, I pray that we all, O oh God, would be hands-free or not clinging to this world, but, but would be ever uh, putting our energies into furthering your kingdom. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time today, that your Son would be magnified in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This mortal life also. Well, let's go ahead and turn. You're in Matthew 13. We're talking about the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven today. And uh, to get us started, would someone read for us um, nice and loud? Get, let me have one reader to read verses 31 through 35. One loud, one loud reader, 31 through 35. Okay, Pastor. Yes, Matthew 13. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them about a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Mm, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. These two parables against the, the backdrop of the, the, the parables that preceded it, are really parables of hope. Um, the, in the first parable, we gained a view into the nature of the human heart in the presence of the kingdom. The human heart in the presence of the kingdom, and the kind of response that the kingdom would get in the nature of sinful people. Though the kingdom's message is going out, it is being rejected by many, and it is being accepted by some. The last parable we went over, it confronted the problem of the existence of rebels, though the king has arrived. The existence of rebels in the very presence of the kingdom, in the very presence of the king. The Old Testament expectation was that when the Messiah would come, he would be a king. He would take up the very throne and rule of King David himself. Out of Bethlehem, a ruler would come forth whose days had no beginning. And he would bring salvation to Israel. Bring salvation to Israel and he would destroy 
her enemies. Uh, his coming would be a massive event. Uh, be a massive event. Now that creates a problem for some of those who had these expectations. Um, what was the problem? The king has come, and I want to draw something up here for you. Something, something small. We've, we've drawn this multiple times, but the king has come right here. The king has come, and his rivals are not destroyed. And so we saw that the mystery of that last parable we were, uh, that we were going over, that we were studying, is that in the present evil age, the world and the saints will live in the presence uh, of, they will live in a kingdom as a mixed society until the eschatological takes place in the second coming of the Lord. So we could say that, we could say that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom has come down in the Lord Jesus. The kingdom has come down, but this kingdom is of a different nature, a nature which was not expected. And in these parables, what Jesus is teaching us is what verse 35 says. Well, he will say, when he says that the Messiah, this, the coming one, he says, I will open my mouth in parables from Psalm 78.2. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Uh, this is truth that has been hidden, that is being revealed through parables. It is being revealed through parables, information that, that was not revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, it, as he says here, it is, these are things hidden since the foundation of the world. And so we're getting a look into the very nature of the kingdom, which was not like anticipated, uh, they did. They they most likely did not see it as Jesus was proclaiming it, preaching and teaching it, and we can see just by the reaction of the religious leaders that uh, when Jesus came preaching the kingdom, it was met with a lot of doubt. It was met with a lot of mocking. Um, it was met with a lot of unbelief and hardness of heart. And so we would be in a mixed society until the eschatological day of separation, which would be this would be. This would be the first coming of Christ. This would be the second, which would inaugurate the age, age to come. Age to come. That's a little cheesy, but age to come. Um, so Jesus really is a given us. He's given us a powerful testimony of the nature of the kingdom in the present time, which excludes the elements of ultimate judgment and salvation, though they, mo- though they will most certainly take place. So in summary, the kingdom of God is, is the kingdom of God exclusively eschatological? That's a question to you. Is it, what is that? Is it exclusively eschatological? It's not exclusively eschatological. Many assumed that it was going to take on that form, but it is not only future, but what? It's present, right? It's present. So we could say that it is not only going to be something in the future, but, uh, but present as well. Pro- yes, sir. I would just add that, um, that the kingdom of God is eschatology in the present. It is. It is. Right. It's the already not yet kind of. Like a trick question. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a sense, in a sense. Um, so it wasn't expected, though. What Jesus came preaching and teaching was not what people were expecting in the day of the Lord, uh, when that day would draw near and there would be real salvation, real destruction, um, being exercised by God. This is what we know for sure, though. Not only that the kingdom is coming, but the kingdom has what? The kingdom has come. How do you support that? Okay, give me a verse. How do you support the kingdom of God has come? Yes. Amen. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Anything else? Luke one fifteen, Mark Mark one fifteen, Mark one fifteen. That the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Um, yeah, that's right. You have a a lot of verses speaking about the kingdom of God. Um, but we have to know this: the kingdom of God is not only a domain. But it's also a dominion. It is a dominion. It's a place where God exercises sovereign rule. My question to you is, how would you define the kingdom of God presently? How would you define the present form of the kingdom of God? The church is in the kingdom, right? I would make a distinction between the church and the kingdom. I believe the church is the one who furthers the kingdom. Those who enter into the kingdom, by, uh, by default, they enter into the church. But when Jesus was preaching that, that the time is fulfilled uh, and the, the kingdom of God is at hand, um, I would say that it's not synonymous with saying the church is at hand, right? But something else, right? Like the kingdom, the rule of God, uh, and the new era of salvation has broken into history, in a different way that is in some sense not synonymous with, but uh, they're inseparable, those, those, two, uh, those two theologies, those two different doctrines. They're inseparable. And so uh, what else? What else would you say? How else would you define the present form of the kingdom? How would you, how would you define the kingdom of God? Hmm. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's good. No, I think uh, my definition would be similar to that. The gracious reign of God in the hearts of his people by faith in his son, we see the, the king, the present form of the kingdom. Uh, I would define it something similar to that. Anyone else have anything to add to that? Um, so Jesus said his kingdom is not of the world, but that doesn't mean his kingdom is not in the world, right? The kingdom is in the world. Jesus, Jesus Christ brought the kingdom down in his person, and it is through that king, King Jesus, that the kingdom has intruded this sphere of darkness uh, through the Lord Jesus. So in the parable, we'll get to the parable of the, of the mustard seed. And as I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the first two parables dealt with the realities of rejection, 
the realities of final judgment. And these two parables that, that we are dealing with at hand, they really do serve to encourage us. They serve to lift up our chins. He tells these parables in order to uh, address the doubts of the people who didn't quite understand or recognize the kingdom of God which had come in Christ. The kingdom of God which had come in Christ, as we alluded to at the beginning, they expected something with outward triumph, right? Something with gloss, a royal ruler that exercised political power, uh, but that wasn't what they got. Uh, They didn't understand the nature of the kingdom, and hence he taught these parables. He taught these parables. Uh, Let's get into the parable at hand, the parable of the mustard seed. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants. It becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The kingdom of God is likened unto a mustard seed. A mustard seed. I want you to think, uh, Pastor, if I was to tell you the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and I, and I handed you a mustard seed, here you go, and I said the kingdom of God is like that, how much confidence would you have that we are going to flip the world upside down? From an agricultural perspective? Yeah. <laughs> Not much. Not much. Now, what we're used to in our stores is a little yellow seed for the most part. And that is the, that's one that's a yellow mustard seed. And uh, that's where, uh, you know, it comes out yellow, kind of grainy, mixed with turmeric. It comes out like mustard, like you have in your bottles. Um, But he didn't necessarily use that. If you want to pass that around, we'll pass that around. Um, But he used, what, what we're talking about is most likely Jesus speaking about the black mustard seed. It's a very tiny seed. It's much smaller, as you, as you notice there, probably a fourth of the yellow mustard seed that we're used to. Very tiny seeds. The mustard seed was a very important crop in the world. In this point in history, uh, we are probably just mainly concerned with that one, uh, just the black seed. Uh, but it had, uh, had various uses and purposes in the world. It could be converted into oil and used uh, many different ways in, 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 in that uh, avenue. It had various medicinal uses, and uh, it could be used to flavor food. Um, however, the main point that Jesus is conveying is about the current size of the kingdom. Think of that seed, right? It's tiny is what he's saying. The current, he says, the current size of the kingdom is like a mustard seed. And once you get that seed, you'll think, wow, this is really small, right? It's tiny. And in the East, a mustard seed was a proverbial for something small as well. Uh, when the Jews spoke about a drop of blood, they would say that it's as small as a mustard seed. Uh, if one committed a, a small offense or a breach of the law, they would say that that offense, they would describe it as small as a mustard seed. A small offense. A, uh, uh, it was a tiny breach. And uh, familiar with all of us, Jesus used, uh, used this in another place when he said, what? For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a what? As a mustard seed. Isn't that incredible? If you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it shall move, and nothing shall be impossible to you. 
And the point of that is just saying great things are able to happen in the presence of small faith. Great things are able to happen in the presence of small faith. And further, not only was this, this, uh, this a proverbial way of, of, uh, of, uh, of speaking about something small, it was also a literal way. In verse 32, any questions so far? I'll, I'm just kind of laying this out. Just stop me if you have any questions. Uh, but in verse 32, it says, And this is smaller than all other seeds. Than all other seeds. Um, at this point, that little fact that this seed is smaller than all other seeds, uh, the Bible has many critics when it states that. Because the mustard seed, they say, is not the smallest of all seeds that exist. Um. They say the cypress tree and the wild orchid seed are still smaller. Uh, the plant category that Jesus places the mustard seed is with the uh, the lacanone. The lacanone. You see in verse 32 here, when he says that, and this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants. Jesus categorizes this seed it is among the garden plants. It is among the vegetables, the greens, uh, which were planted as a crop for consumption. For consumption as opposed to wild plants and trees. In that category, Jesus was absolutely right in what he was saying. Um, there, are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of seeds that are smaller than a mustard seed, but in the context and the purposes in which Jesus was speaking about as a something which a sower would go out to sow, it was the smallest. It was the smallest seed that he would sow in that, uh, in that place. It's actually still the smallest seed uh, that is being sown as a crop, even in the East. Um, this was affirmed by a leading botanist. His name is Dr. L.H. Shinners. He's a director of the herbarium at, the, uh, at SMU in Dallas, regular lecture, lecture at the Smithsonian Institute. And he said this, quote, The mustard seed would indeed have been the smallest of those to have been noticed by the people at the time of Christ. The principal field uh, crops, barley, wheat, lentils, and beans have, have much larger seeds as do other plants which might have been present as weeds and so forth. Uh, there are various weeds and wildflowers belonging to the mustard, the amaranth, pigweed, chickweed family, with seeds that are small or smaller than the mustard, but they would not have been known or noticed by the inhabitants. They would not have been those which were sown. Uh, they are wild and certainly would not have been planted as a crop. And then so speaking about seeds that were sown for harvest, the mustard seed was the smallest. And that is the context in which Jesus is, uh, is speaking it. Isn't that fascinating? It's the smallest seed in that context when he's speaking about that which would someone would sow for a crop. And not only is it small, the text goes on to say that when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now, here... We are not thinking of a huge tree. We are not thinking of a cedar, right? We are not thinking of a timber. Um, we are not thinking about something that is the size of a house, the f you know, uh, that is the king of the forest kind of tree. But we're thinking about uh, a crop, right? The mustard seed didn't produce uh, that, that big house type, 
you know, that you picture in your mind uh, kind of coming out, and, and it's the biggest in the forest. But we are talking about a crop. Um, we're to think about a plant. We're to think about a bush. As the text says, it is larger than the garden plants. That's what the text says. And I believe the correct way to understand that is given the size of surrounding plants in a garden, it stands out like a tree. That plant would stand out like a tree. Uh, usually that, tree, that, that plant is going to be anywhere from six to nine feet in season whenever they're growing these. And they get from anywhere from 12 to 15 feet. Uh, and so there's, there's multiple sources that go back and say that these plants, when they're, when they're grown, can give shade to the horse and its rider. Very tall, right? right? Put that next to your rosemary and tell me what do you think it looks like, <laughs> right? It's a big, it, at that point, you'd be like, well, it looks like a tree next to everything else that I am, uh, next to everything else that, uh, that I am planting. Um, and so once fully developed, uh, the base and the branches of the crop would begin to harden, become very firm, and the birds of the air would come and perch or dwell, lodge in its branches, lodge in its branches. And so Jesus is here. Um, he is really explaining the kingdom uh, by comparing it to something uh, very everyday uh, something that everyone knew about. But in this parable, he does reveal a mystery. He does reveal the mystery. Now, we don't necessarily have the explanation to that mystery, but uh, with all that Jesus has told us, with the indwelling Holy Spirit giving us illumination, I do believe that we can make sense of what the text says. And my question is, what would that mystery be? What is the mystery to be gleaned from this parable? Well, to correct what I said about not being agricultural benefit, mm-hmm. I'll say physical benefit. Because you look at it physically and you wouldn't think that seed's worth much. Hmm. It's just as the Jews were expecting a white stallion and a big king to come in and conquer. Hmm. Sure. Ah, uh, good point. Yeah. So the kingdom of heaven isn't measured by physical appearances. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Anybody else? Anybody else want to top that? Uh, I think you're onto the this. I, I think you're onto the 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 meaning. As I see it, is that the kingdom of God has a small beginning, has a small beginning, and it has a large end. Read anything. Mm. By the time you reach the full flower, the full blossom of the kingdom, it will overpower all everything else in the garden. Yeah. So much so that the, the birds will come and nest in its branches and all of that. It will affect the That's good. Almost like a climax. But, and until the climax comes, then you see the true extent of the kingdom. I kind of see it like this. Like we saw that the, the first coming of Christ bringing the kingdom and the powers of the age to come to bear on the present evil age. And when he came down, 
he brought the kingdom with him, and I see it as going like this. I see it as going like that, as, as something which it starts off very small, but by the time of the second coming, the kingdom of God will be consummated uh, in some sense. I still kind of need to work out some of the details on that. But that's kind of how I see it in terms of this parable here. Um, the meaning is that out of the insignificant beginning, invisible to the human, of, human eye, like Pastor was saying, that God will create his mighty kingdom. And it, it will embrace the world. Jews and Gentiles, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be affected by the mighty power of the kingdom of God. Ultimately, ultimately, uh, it is by the means of the community of the kingdom that the reign of God will extend to the ends of the earth. They will extend to the earth. There is no earthly kingdom that will be excluded from the touchdown of the kingdom of God in their midst. And so, though the kingdom of God began so small as with 12 uneducated men, uh, it will have a global impact in the end. Right? I think that's what the agricultural typology there is for. Right. As you said, that little seed grows into a tree that many benefit from. That's right. That's right. Mm. That's good. That's good. I agree with that. Um, in the beginning, the kingdom of God, it may look insignificant. It may look weak. It may look lifeless without the right eyes to see. Right? Some Pharisees came to Jesus where they're inquiring about you know, when the kingdom of God is going to come. Uh, when the kingdom of God is going to come. That's in Matthew seventeen twenty through 21. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is what? Is within you, right? Or in you, but definitely within you. He's talking to the Pharisees after all. The kingdom of God is in your midst, is in your midst. That kingdom which Jesus brought was not tangible. It was not tangible. That kingdom was invisible. It was of a spiritual nature, a spiritual dominion that one day will be fully manifested and seen. And uh, though it doesn't initially come with outward pomp, uh, inwardly resides mighty power. Mighty power in the kingdom. Uh, Though the, the kingdom has a tiny beginning in the end, it will be unparalleled. In, incomparable to anything we have ever experienced. Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. God's reign will eventually encompass the earth. And all these parables take us into the consummation of that kingdom. Isn't that powerful? Powerful thoughts. You can see just the powerful growth and advancement of the kingdom just looking at the present time. Just looking at the present time. Um, What does it teach us? It teaches us not to despise small beginnings. Not to despise small beginnings. uh, Even though the wicked are still here. Even though the wicked have not been destroyed even though they are still persecuting, even though they are still um, shrugging their shoulders away from the 
the reign and rule of God and trying to, to, to thwart its advancement, they will not. They will not. The kingdom of God will not be thwarted even though it will be opposed on every side. It will not be stopped. Yes, sir. Yes, yes sister. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. That's how God is going to advance his kingdom with a very weak community, right? A very weak community. In the eyes of the world, a very foolish community, but they have taken hold of the very wisdom of God. They are walking in the very presence and power of God, armed with the armor of God. And that is how that we are going to advance the kingdom in the world. We are going to advance the kingdom in the world. And, um, but look at the odds. Uh, the kingdom did advance being shouldered by 12 disciples at the outside of at the outset of Jesus ministry the kingdom could not be stopped when it was being advanced by 12 men isn't that incredible why do we fear right we've got a we've there's a lot of brethren here right and the spirit of god stirred up 120 and they flipped the world upside down they flip the world upside down. It's because the kingdom is unstoppable. God is going to accomplish his, accomplish his purposes. His word is sure. His word is sure. Now, uh, let's turn, turn with me to Daniel 4. Because he goes on and it says that, that this plan will become a tree and the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And I think he said that on purpose to allude to and give us uh, some background about, right? Uh, to give us some background about, you know, you see even in the ancient Near East and in the Old Testament that a kingdom was likened to a tree. It was likened to a tree. You see that in Daniel. You see that in Ezekiel. But when you, when you look at Daniel 4, starting in verse, uh, we could see, looking at Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, um, look at... We'll start, we'll start in verse 10 there. Uh, Daniel 4, verse 10 says, Now these were the visions. Nebuchadnezzar came and he got Daniel to come and interpret his visions. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and, came, and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the earth and the whole earth. Its foliage uh, was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. And the, so you start beginning to see how 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 many are going to uh, uh, many are, are are going to reap the benefits of this tree of being uh, of being uh, sheltered and shaded and. Uh, it says that the beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. 
fed themselves from it. And when you go, when you go and he actually gives the interpretation of this vision in verse 22, it says, it is you speaking about the tree in verses 20 and 21, the tree that you saw in verse 20, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt in, and whose branches and the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And in that, the king, and he says, uh, and uh, and in that the king saw an angelic watcher. His tree was about to be chopped down, Nebuchadnezzar. But it speaks about his kingdom, this great tree, which is the point of uh, uh, which is the point of that. The uh, turn with me to, to Ezekiel. Go back, go back to Ezekiel thirty-one. so much here there really is you have the same thing in ezekiel 31 starting in verse 2 son of man say to pharaoh king of egypt and to his multitude whom who whom are you like in the in your greatness behold assyria was a cedar the same language in lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high it's and its top was among the clouds the waters made it grow, the deep made it high, and its rivers it, with its rivers it continually extended all around its planting place, and it sent out its channels uh, to all the trees of the field. Therefore, its height was loftier than all the trees of the field, and its bows became uh, many, and its branches long, because of many waters as it spread them out. All the birds of the heavens nested in its branches, nested in its branches. You see the same thing here. The birds, they were nesting in its branches. And what I believe by just the interpretation of Daniel, that many nations were benefiting from the greatness of this tree, finding shade in it, finding refuge in it. Uh, United States is in some sense a refuge for many nations. We have many allies who benefit from uh, being an ally with us. They benefit from that. And the nations also will come. And they will be beneficiaries of the afforded shelter uh, that uh, uh, that Christ gives. His kingdom ultimately will encompass um, the nations. And I want to maybe we can summarize. We've got about fifteen minutes or so. Uh, we can get into the parable of the leaven. Go back to Matthew thirteen. Uh, yes, sir. Um, just wanted to bring up uh, Ezekiel 17. Yeah. Because it's the same as the one we quoted from Ezekiel 31. Okay. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, what I think what Jesus is doing there in that parable by quoting that is he's kind of tapping into the theology of Daniel, Ezekiel, and the prophets. And the whole theology behind that that God's kingdom or his people will be like this tree or here as Jesus comparing it to the mustard seed, you know, the, the plant that's growing there, mm. right? So what's going on, I think what Jesus is saying is that the mustard seed uh, is supposed to draw our attention to the fact that God's kingdom will outstrip the kingdoms of the world. It will overshadow them, mm. right? It will, it, will, it will ultimately, you know, survive 
when they are torn down, mm. like in Ezekiel, and when the kingdoms of this world perish, God's kingdom will thrive and will survive in the age to come. Mm. And so if we go to Ezekiel 17, that's exactly what he's talking about there, is that the people of God will become like his kingdom, mm, okay. or like his tree that will grow, like a plant that will flourish. Right? That's good, yeah. And Yeah. Dough that were that are being used here. 
It's interesting, in Genesis 18.6, Sarah made the same amount of bread uh, when her and Abraham were visited with those three divine figures. You remember that in Genesis 18.6. She made the exact uh, same amount for them. And so a little leaven must be powerful. Uh, and that's what we're talking about here in the, the mystery of the kingdom. The leaven is powerful. It's pervasive. If it's going to leaven that much flour, right? There's a lot of room to gain. And the kingdom has to traverse and traverse. And uh, it has to extend and expand through that, uh, through that loaf, through the flour. In comparison, right, that is a big task. That is a big task. Any questions so far? That? One thing else is to keep in mind is that leaven is not necessarily or inherently something that is evil. Right? You see leaven being used in multiple ways in the Bible. Um, and it's mostly used to express how permeated something is with evil. That something is thoroughly evil, completely evil, right? Uh, it's, it's been completely leavened with evil, right? What are some examples that you can think of about uh, someone being leavened with evil, wickedness? Uh, what comes to mind when the Bible talks about that in the New Testament? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, right? What was he talking about there? Context. Their teachings, right? In another context, he says it says it's their hypocrisy, which is their hypocrisy, the leaven of the Pharisees. Where else do you see that? Where else do we see the power of leaven? Right, right. And what is that in, in context? What is that being? Church discipline, right? Uh, and, and speaking about the um, uh, a little leaven, meaning the, the evil that is taking place there and how quickly, how rapidly it spreads if it is not, if the axe is not laid to the root. Um, so you see this, you see it, it's being used, uh, it's being used in a way that shows how rapidly it can spread, um, how pervasive evil can be. It spreads like leaven. It's like when you mix leaven into a loaf and how quickly it will leaven the whole thing if it's not taken care of, right? Um, but it never says, the Bible never says that leaven is, is evil necessarily. In this parable, it says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom is like leaven. Uh, but it never says that, the, that leaven is evil uh, but the kingdom of God is good. Some people would say that this leaven corresponds to evil. They have a different approach. I don't, I don't see it when I look at this text, but a lot of people would say that since leaven is spoken of uh, in such a way that uh, really it's only being used in these contexts to express a manner of evil, it must be, uh, that, might, that, that must kind of impact the interpretation of, uh, of this parable, but I don't think it does. Uh, but the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Uh, uh, and um, it doesn't correspond to evil, overtaking the kingdom, which is one interpretation of this, but I think it's the opposite, that, that the leaven corresponds to the kingdom, which overcomes evil in the world. 
It overcomes evil in the world. Uh, the parable, uh, this parable, it says that the, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Uh, um, and a little bit of leaven has the power to affect everything. Just a little bit of leaven. And that's what we're seeing in this parable. It has the power to affect everything. Um, and that gives us, that really is one of the mysteries that we have here. Is that the kingdom, the power of the kingdom is great. It won't be stopped. Uh, and, like le- and like leaven, it will expand in the world, through the world. The kingdom of God will expand. Though it is small, it is not weak. It is not weak. Many people thought it was weak. Many people were, uh, were doubting it because of its, its size, because of, you know, it didn't come with much color like we were uh, speaking about earlier. Like you were talking about, it didn't come with a gloss that many people thought it was going to come with. And uh, one day, the work of the kingdom of heaven will be finished. Like this. It's like this. One day, the work of the kingdom will be completely finished, and the whole loaf, which I think is speaking about the world, will be completely leavened. I think the world will be completely leavened, uh, just like... Just like uh, uh, the kingdom of God will encompass the nations, it will be universal in its impact, and uh, the kingdoms of this world will be swallowed up by the kingdom of the Lord, by the Lord's kingdom. Um, And it will not stop. It will not stop. Uh, No matter what uh, the circumstances are here, no matter the persecutions, the violence, all the afflictions, Uh, that are coming against it, it will still work like leaven until the end. It will work like leaven. And it will continue and continue to leaven the loaf. The current kingdom, it will grow, it will triumph until the consummated kingdom appears. That's what I think this means. Until the consummated kingdom appears, it it will grow, it will reign, it doesn't mean that all, all people are going to be saved, as we, just, as we just saw in the last parable, or in the, the parable of the tares and the wheat. There's going to be a mixture of society, but the kingdom is going to, uh, it is going to be powerful. It is going to triumph. You know, the language of triumph in the Bible is not always salvation. It's not always salvation, and I'll leave you with 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty five. It says, He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. God is going to reign like that. And in the end, he will deliver his people and grant them uh, this, this final rest in salvation and entrance into that consummated kingdom where we would dwell with God forever. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's go to worship.